the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. We can get podcasts as well as on iTunes and Spotify and the rest. On Twitter, at Dan Prof Show and at Dan Prof. So Bernie's big win in Nevada on Saturday has uh, the Democrat establishment uh, very worried that he is a runaway train that can't be stopped. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, suggesting it's more than a win. His candidacy is not just about winning the nomination, not just about defeating Trump, but he reminded everybody from San Antonio on Saturday night, remarking on his victory in Nevada, that this is about uh, revolution, political revolution. We have just put together a multi-generational, multi-racial coalition, which is going to not only win in Nevada, it's going to sweep this country. Mm. And uh, Mannequin Pete uh, took to the dais as well, talking about his third place finish, putting the best face on that that he could and warning against Bernie. Uh, since Bloomberg was uh, not on the ballot in Nevada, so unavailable until uh, tomorrow night's debate. And I congratulate Senator Sanders on a strong showing today, knowing that we celebrate many of the same ideals. But before we rush to nominate Senator Sanders in our one shot to take on this president, let us take a sober look at what is at stake for our party, for our values, and for those with the most to lose. I believe the best way to defeat Donald Trump and deliver for the American people is to broaden and galvanize the majority that supports us on the critical issues. Senator Sanders believes in an inflexible ideological revolution that leaves out most Democrats, not to mention most Americans. Mm. And uh, Buttigieg went on to say something else that I want to remark upon, even though we're focused on Bernie, but something he said is... um, Worth noting. I believe we need to defeat Donald Trump and turn the page on this era in our politics by establishing a tone of belonging, bringing an end to the viciousness and the bullying that is tearing apart our country. We must change what it feels like to live in the United States of America. Change what it feels like to live in the United States of America. I want to pick that up after we uh, have a little discussion about uh, Bernie's inevitability. To help us do that, we're pleased to be joined by Matthew Continetti, who is the editor of the Washington Free Beacon and contributor to National Review. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So um, is uh, Bernie all but an inevitability at this point? Uh, it looks like it. I mean, I think really there's one last-ditch effort to stop Bernie's momentum, and that would be the upcoming uh, South Carolina primary. Even there, if he loses, um, he's still positioned to have a pretty good uh, Super Tuesday uh, just a week afterward. And, you know, this is the Democrats' fault. Uh, They um, uh, front-loaded the 
contests so that about half the delegates will have been apportioned uh, by the first week of March. And in that outcome, um, that's going to favor the person who picks up momentum early, and that person was Bernie Sanders. And you even have those that uh, certainly are hoping that somebody can catch fire and stop Sanders uh, conceding that he goes to the convention even with a plurality, a clear plurality, but not a majority of the delegates, it is going to be exceedingly difficult to nominate somebody else and not uh, you know, irreparably damage the party, at least for 2020. Right. In 1984, um, Walter Mondale entered the Democratic convention without a majority, but with a plurality of delegates. And of course, he was the nominee who went on to lose to Ronald Reagan. So it would be um, unprecedented for Bernie to go into the convention uh, with the most delegates, if not a majority, and then be denied the nomination. If that were to happen, uh, I think the Democratic Party would split, um, perhaps not you know, officially, but all of the Bernie people um, would, I think, sit this election out. Is this uh, you mentioned that this is the Democrat Party's fault? Is it also their fault to sort of the establishment types that are uh, pulling their hair out or in the case of James Carville, he doesn't can't do that. So he's just on MSNBC squawking about it. Uh, is it their fault, too, because they held on to Biden for too long, uh, not having enough of appreciation of how bad a candidate he he is and how far, frankly, gone he is in terms of mental acuity and uh, didn't embrace uh, Mayor Pete? quickly enough, who sort of packages basically the same policy agenda uh, more attractively in terms of tone and presentation than Bernie does. Sure. I mean, um, all of these candidates have weaknesses. This is a very uh, disappointing field for Democrats. It's something that I've been pointing out uh, for over a year. I called them the 20 Smurfs when they when they started running. And even Mayor Pete, um, who uh, certainly presents a more moderate face than um, Senator Sanders, he has real weaknesses himself. I mean, he's 38 years old. He has a very thin resume. He was mayor for eight years of Indiana's fourth largest city. Um, even he, then, he had problems uh, in um, dealing with the African-American community in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, to think that he somehow is a stronger candidate uh, than Sanders, I think, is a mistake. Of course, Sanders has his own weaknesses. They're all flawed. What I look at is, in 2016, Barack Obama basically told Joe Biden not to run and handed it handed the nomination to Hillary Clinton, who um, was extremely unpopular, disliked, and uh, for, for those reasons, I think, really eased pre- Donald Trump's uh, way to the presidency. This time, Obama has said nothing, and that had uh, the effect of keeping Biden in the race for, for a long time, for delaying Mer- Michael Bloomberg's entry. And so I think, once again, Obama has ruined the Democratic primary by allowing Bernie Sanders to pick up steam. The other weakness uh, Mayor Pete has is he talks like a fortune cookie. I mean, it's just cliche after cliche after cliche. I mean, it gets to a point of absurdity, even in the realm of politics. Uh, But but going to uh, going to Bernie uh, in terms of Democrats, party culpability, uh, the way the 2016 primary was handled certainly didn't win them a lot of friends among Bernie supporters. Now he comes into 2020, and this has been, I think, an underappreciated asset that he came to the table with, with a large uh, database of small-dollar donors, 
uh, a lot of volunteers that are holdovers from 2016. So he comes to the table with infrastructure that even Joe Biden didn't have at the outset. No, that's right. I think the true measure of grassroots support is your number of small dollar donors in 2016. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders um, demonstrated great strength in that regard, and it's the same case in 2020. Uh, Bernie has a loyal following, and he's also lucky in that the non-Bernie vote is being split half a dozen ways. And this is the same thing that confronted Republicans in 2016, whereas uh, Donald Trump had a recognizable brand and a loyal following, and all of his opponents just kept dividing up the anti-Trump vote. And so that allowed Donald Trump to win the nomination. I think something very similar is at work in 2020 on the Democratic side. And, and by the time, you know, uh, as Bloomberg dithers with a broker convention strategy and, and you know, you're you're hoping for the field to winnow and get down to one or two candidates so that you'd have more upside opportunity, more undecideds in play. By the time you get there, a la 2016, it's too late. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Bernie Sanders is in a very commanding position in the Democratic primary. And the truth is, we really don't know what happens after that. Um, we don't we don't know whether Democrats will get in line. We don't know whether Michael Bloomberg is going to sit it out. You know, I mean, Michael Bloomberg's fortune was very crucial to winning the House for Democrats in 2018. If uh, we can tell just by that first debate um, uh, appearance last week that he has no affection for Bernie Sanders, Um, if Sanders is a nominee, is Michael Bloomberg really going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars for the Democrats? Um, Maybe down ballot, but I don't think that will be enough. Uh, American politics um, has been unpredictable for four years. Um, and uh, it's going to become even more so, I think, uh, with Bernie Sanders as the Democratic nominee. But the unpredictability, uh, un- unpredictability of that uh, enthusiasm is something that, you know, leads one to be somewhat concerned if you're Trump. I mean, take nothing for granted in a volatile environment. And so when Trump said uh, the other week, echoed by his pollster, Tony Fabrizio, that, uh, you know, all things being equal, Bloomy versus Bernie, we'd, we'd be happy to take on Bloom, uh, Bloomberg and his money. Um, was that was that was that just posturing? Was that truth and a good reason to take that position? Like I say, all of these candidates have flaws. Bloomberg has um, many flaws, which were demonstrated in his debate performance. Yes. Um, Bernie, of course, has real flaws too. I mean, he's a socialist ideologue, and America is not um, open to socialism. Uh, younger people are, uh, but you know, younger people don't make up the majority of the electorate, and and so. Uh, Bernie's, uh, as we saw in his recent interview with 60 Minutes, when he praised Fidel Castro's literacy program. I mean, the, the, the guy has a soft spot for socialist dictators. Um, I think that uh, framing the election as a contest between the Trump economy and socialism is uh, going to help you know, Donald Trump win re-election. He is Matthew Connetti. He's the editor of the Washington Free Beacon, contributor to National Review. Check out his uh, most recent piece in National Review, The Battle of the Burroughs and the Fall of the Political Establishment. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show the uh, uh, briefing of the house intel committee by 
the quote-unquote elections are. And do you find it ironic that we're using a title of Russian royalty to talk about Russian meddling in a 2020 election, czar? I don't know why we call people czars in this country. But anyway, yeah, uh, it's uh, generated reaction from both uh, President Trump and Dem Socialist frontrunner Bolshevik Bernie. Here's Trump. Nobody said it. I read where Russia is helping Bernie Sanders. Nobody said it to me at all. Nobody briefed me about that at all. They leaked it. Adam Schiff and his group, they leaked it to the papers. And as usual, they ought to investigate Adam Schiff for leaking that information. Here's uh, Bernie Sanders. We were told that Russia, maybe other countries are going to get involved in this campaign. Uh, and look, here's the message to Russia. Stay out of American elections. Mm-hmm. Same message that National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien offered. But I haven't seen any evidence that Russia is doing anything to uh, uh, attempt to get President Trump reelected. And our message to the Russians is stay out of the U.S. elections. Uh, we've been very tough on, on Russia and we've been great on election security. So uh, I, I think it's a non-story. I, I think it's a non-story, too. You know, and Stephanopoulos pushed back. Well, a lot of people think it is a story. Well, of course, George, you and your friends on the Hill think it's a story. We, we talk about this in generic terms. Russian meddling in our election. Well, what form is that taking? If it's not compromising the count, in other words, if they're not hacking and changing the results, if that's not it, then what are we talking about? A uh, hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand dollars on Facebook campaigns uh, with Russian propaganda? I mean, should we try to quantify how much is spent on propaganda, clearly fact-free messaging from all sorts of directions? That is really what is material to protecting free and fair elections in this country. I guess I'm with NSA O'Brien on this. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano. He is the vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation and author of books including Wiki at War, Conflict in a Socially Networked World, as well as Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Hey, good to be with you. I just heard maybe the the most sane sixty seconds of analysis I've ever heard on this issue. So thank you. Well done, brother. Thank you. That's my business. Yeah, sanity. Is I mean, if my, you just yeah, if you just think, I, I, I take your point about the the physical meddling in the ballot box, in which I quite frankly think we're we're all over this in terms of federal, state, local engagement about how do you secure that process. Um, in terms of the impact of Russian meddling, which we know we're doing, I'm happy to walk through that chapter in verse, but look at what, I forget the number, of the, the amount that Bloomberg is spending on the campaign, just personally. $500 and, million so far. Right, and so the notion that Russian money is any more effective, that, that it's good, it's a terrible thing, but that it, it has the capacity to actually move votes in this country as opposed to all the other voices and everything else is it does kind of strain credulity. Right. And so the, the D.C. press corps is just in the boogeyman business. And uh, they, they, don't, yeah. they, they refuse to let this boogeyman go, even though it, it has been discredited at every turn over the last three years. Yeah, essentially they've become Putin's puppets. I mean, now, now yeah. he has to do even less. All he has to do is create a rumor that he's doing something, and the press corps goes crazy. Uh, and so on this topic as well, you had an op-ed in the Washington Post from – Retired Navy Admiral William McRaven talking about Joe McGuire, the outgoing DNI, Director of National Intelligence, and the whole kind of if good men like Joe McGuire can't speak the truth, we should be deeply afraid for the republic and so on and so forth. Uh, I mean, Joe McGuire was scheduled to be out on March 12th. Uh, That's right. I mean, that was a 
And and there's there's, right. there's disputes, including from Mark Short of uh, Pence's chief of staff on with Wallace this weekend, that there you know there was pointed questions, but there's no acrimony, there's no lack of respect for Joe McGuire. It's just a personnel change, for goodness sakes. Yeah, and look, I I have some very good links into this process, and that's absolutely right. He was leaving anyway. I mean, he literally had his plane tickets in hand. Um, the the announcement of Grinnell just moved it up a couple of weeks. That was it. And and I, I, you know, my antenna goes up. Anytime you hear this report about Trump exploded, Trump did this and Trump did that, the first question you have to ask is, is that story actually true and accurate? Because literally now the bar is so low that all somebody has to do is find a reporter and they will ha- be happy to run with the story. And remember the old days where you had to have like three independent sources? Not, not three people who heard the same rumor. Right. Three actually independent sources that right. would say something happened before you would report it. That is gone. Truly, truly. My fa- my favorite example of juvenile journal. That's my new my new term. I'm going to copyright this. Forget about fake news. We're in a juvenile journalism. Is the the breathtaking CNN revelation that Trump likes meat? Yes, and he is going to India where there's a bunch of vegetarians. Yeah. That was literally a CNN headline. Yeah, it, it was. No, I saw that over the week too. Right, he likes it's it's the and uh, Instapundit had a good reaction to that. This is the this is what CNN has been reduced to um, indirect ways to say the president's fat. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the story. Okay, fine. All right, sure. That's all you that, got. That, yeah, that, yeah. That, but he, he's going to go there and find out. He's going to ask for a burger, and the entire country will rise up in, in revolt. You know. Little, literally, that's what CNN has reduced itself to. It's little, so little, juvenile. Little did, CNN, little did CNN know, though, he is bringing Joaquin Phoenix in tow with a bunch of cows that Joaquin Phoenix saved. <laughs> I wanted to get your uh, take on uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, since he's the front runner for the Democrat nomination at this point, and uh, what he said on, in, during a 60 Minutes interview last night with Anderson Cooper about Castro. And uh, not inconsistent with what he said about uh, dictators like Ortega and Castro and Soviet communists uh, throughout the decades. But this is an updated version in case you thought he was going to walk away from Castro. He's not. Uh, yeah, we, we, we disagree. Essentially, what he said is we disagree. Uh, we certainly oppose you know, Castro disappearing people. We oppose death squads, which was great to hear. Uh, but uh, hey. You know, one of the first things that Castro did when he uh, when the revolution uh, took power is uh, embark on a huge literacy program in Cuba. Now, is that a bad thing? You know, uh, Jim, everybody focuses on the bad things that Castro did, not the good things. Well, you know, I do policy, not politics. So not, you know, presidential candidates can say whatever they want. I, I think the Obama administration's effort to engage with the uh, Cuban regime was a massive failure. Uh, the, the, again, as we did, it is an engagement with Iran. The regimes got more, not less dangerous, and they solidified. They didn't weaken their control. So somehow that it's going to democratize them. That doesn't work. Somehow that it's going to tame their international behavior, that doesn't work. So um, there are a handful of regimes on, on the earth which are literally beyond the pale. Uh, the Cuban regime is clearly one of them. They literally export death and violence and corruption and suffering. Um, I, I, I find it hard to have any use for them. Okay. Well, that's what I was looking for, an assessment of the Cuban, the Castro regime 
the Cuban regime post Castro now because you know we're we're, do, we're looking for silver linings in this context, and that that has to be addressed. And I think it will if Bernie's the nominee, no question. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, I wanted to remark on the uh, untimely passing of Philip Haney, who was a Department of Homeland Security whistleblower. He was found dead on Friday of a single gunshot wound, self-inflicted according to sheriff's office out 40 miles east of sacramento california and on the interstate too according to the police report on february 21 2020 deputies and detectives responded to the area of highway 124 and highway 16 in plymouth to the report of a male subject on the ground with a gunshot wound upon arrival they located identified 66 year old philip haney who was deceased and appeared to have suffered a single self-inflicted gunshot wound firearm located next to haney in his vehicle the investigation is ongoing Philip Haney, who was the author of the book, See Something, Say Nothing, about the willful blindness, he argued, within uh, Department of Homeland Security and intelligence agencies to the level of the threat posed by Islamic terrorism. He testified in June of 2016 before the Senate Judiciary Committee, where he alleged that Obama-era DHS had ordered him to delete hundreds of files about reputed associates of Islamic terrorist groups. He made the case that actually several attacks in the U.S. could have been prevented if some of the files had not been deleted in uh, June of 2016, so about the time he testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. We interviewed him on the morning show that I co-host in Chicago, talking about uh, his research into the networks that the terrorists who committed the attack in San Bernardino and the terrorists who committed the attack at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando were embedded in or certainly had relations with suggesting that uh, you know the this idea of lone wolf well that's a political term or that it's a politician's word but it's not really a law enforcement word here's what philip haney had to say about uh, the san bernardino and orlando terrorist attacks the san bernardino case i speak of a case that had 67 records these are law enforcement records in the system called tex it's our database. I call it an archive database. It's where we keep all the information about passports and birthdays and family names, those kind of things. I worked on the Tablighi Jamaat case at the National Targeting Center in Washington in 2011 and 2012. It was subsequently shut down, as you said, by influence of the State Department. Well, while they were in process of literally shutting the case down at the, the Washington level, I was back in my home port working on a component of that case, focusing on an organization right in Chicago called the Institute of Islamic Education. And I linked together 67 individuals and organizations of a network that was not only national, but international as well. And the brand name of that network is Darulum. That's the name of the mosque in San Bernardino, Darulum al-Islamiyah, San Bernardino. It's a trademark. Everywhere in the world, 
you know what you're going to find when you go to a Darloom mosque or a Darloom madrasa. So, well, what are you going to find? What are you going to find? Mm-hmm. People that are Salafi, which means they go back to the original form of Islam, and they are promoting shari- implementation of Sharia law. That is ultimately the gravitational force behind the global Islamic movement. Wherever you go is the desire, the compulsion, if you will, to implement Sharia law everywhere in the world. And North America, the United States, is not exempt from that force of gravity. And that is what they propose to do. That was my co-host asking, the, you know, what are you going to find at these Darloom uh, mosques and madrasas? Uh, Haney went also also went on in our interview to detail how political correctness had been infecting uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies, including the FBI, giving a specific example about an FBI training manual that uh, he uh, later discussed as a whistleblower before he retired from Department of Homeland Security in 2015. FBI published the training document. It's called the Touchstone Training Document. It has three major paragraphs within the three-page document. In page or paragraph one, it says plainly, I'm going to slightly paraphrase, that just because an individual is affiliated with a known terrorist group, you cannot automatically assume that that individual is a terrorist himself. And so, you know, that sort of uh, culture inside FBI and inside uh uh, law enforcement and national security, which we've become, you know, become all too familiar with on, on other areas as well, uh, Philip Haney was talking about over the last several years. And because of the nature of his death, um, his suicide on an interstate, and because of the nature of his work, both at DHS and, and before in law enforcement, um, and what he was investigating, and the fact he was a whistleblower, there's a lot of questions surrounding uh, his death and the story that it was a suicide. Don't know. Don't know. No, he was a whistleblower who drew attention to important matters that were happening within law enforcement. That His death is a terrible thing. And we'll stay on this to find out if there is any information that becomes available that suggests that it wasn't a suicide. Of course, a lot of questions are being asked for all those obvious reasons I just mentioned. This is Dan Proff. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, the uh, victory in Nevada, and I think the uh, margin of victory by Bolshevik Bernie, has Democrat elites. The deep thinkers, allegedly, those, you know, who appear on TV shows, that constitutes deep thinking, I guess, or an indication that you're a deep thinker. It really doesn't. It's almost inversely proportional. But nonetheless, there is influence there. And it's remarkable how flat-footed these individuals were, that they're so hysterical. Now they've just realized that Bernie presents a real threat to the nomination, uh, even after he won the popular vote in Iowa and won the primary in New Hampshire and all indications were that momentum was building, not to mention, frankly, just recovering both politically as well as medically from a heart attack at the end of last year to be enjoying this resurgence at 78 years old. And uh, so it was really something to witness those who know better 
opining on uh, those anti-Trump networks like MSNBC, starting with the Eurasian Cajun, James Carville. The ABC Washington Post poll comes out. Buttigieg is plus 17 against Trump with uh, college-educated women, and Sanders is at two. Uh, these are the kinds of facts that, that people have to be presented with. We, we, we've got to, and I see that two-thirds of the Nevada caucus goers really want to win the election. I don't know if us in, in the media are sufficiently telling people what are the risks that you're running by doing this. I, I think voters need to really be appraised of, of, of what's going on here. Hopefully these candidates have the skill and are able to do this. We got a week to go before South Carolina, and then 48 hours later, you had Super Tuesday, and, and things are going to be happening furious and fast, and uh, uh, we got to gear up for a, an entirely different race. Indeed. Uh, maybe not much of one. Uh, Chris Matthews uh, on the same network saying the same thing uh, with a little bit of a historical analogy that got him in trouble, calls for him to be fired over this statement. It's mathematically understandable. Every time we poll, every time Steve and everybody polls, two-thirds of the Democratic vote, two-thirds of people who call themselves Democrats are either liberal or very liberal. All Bernie ever had to do, and he's done it beautifully, is get a majority of that, and he's up to the mid-30s. If you get half of 67, you're into the mid-30s, and that's where he's gotten a little better. Biden, his only prayer was to consolidate the third of the vote that's moderate and conservative. And he got nowhere near clearing that field. Nowhere near. That's split up four ways now. And so with new people coming in, Deval Patrick came in, he didn't make it. Uh, Bloomberg is in, he's probably going to survive a bit longer because of his money. But that field wasn't cleared. The only way Biden could win in that one-third of the vote that's either moderate or conservative is to sweep it. He got nowhere near. Bernie, on the other hand, did his job. He got more than a majority, more than a majority of that 67%. That is the name of the game it is pretty much over unless that changes. I was reading last night, Brian, I know you're a history guy too. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940. And the general, Renault, calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Churchill said, how can it be? you got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. So I had that suppressed feeling. I can't be as wild as Carville, but he is damn smart. And I think he's damn right on this one. Well, I'll tell you what, I got to tingle up my leg when uh, Chris Matthews made the uh, Nazis taking France comparison to uh, Bernie taking Nevada. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, As David Harsani said, more like the Bolsheviks storming the Winter Palace. And the whole Matthews riff about moderates and conservatives. What do those terms even mean in the modern Democrat Socialist Party? Bolsheviks versus Mensheviks. And so I guess uh, Mensheviks might be a better term than moderates, much less conservatives. Joy Reid on MSNBC, another pundit, uh, startled by what's happened here. Oh, my gosh, there's some sort of anger among the base of the Socialist Democrat Party or Democrat Socialist, whichever order you prefer. They're really upset. You know, it's funny. I, I wonder why people would be upset without basis or without uh, much of a legitimate basis. I wonder, boy, MSNBC, CNN, all these pundits, all these leftists spend all their time whipping people into a frenzy about Trump, antipathy towards America, and then they're shocked, just plain shocked, to find a candidate tapping in to the anger they've engendered 
and focusing it for his political benefit like Bernie has. Now it is the Sanders people, and I think that the rest of us that sort of look at politics have underestimated the sheer unadulterated rage, the anger of working class people, especially young people who are living in with three uh, roommates and have a Lyft job and an Uber job and they can't make it and they're looking at my generation, Gen X, who we could have it all in the Clinton years and we were living well and our parents and grandparents and they're like throw the tables over. They're turning the tables over and they don't care what the potential result is. They're the hungriest and he only had to consolidate them and the moderates, the sort of mushy moderates think that they have the luxury mushy. of luxuriating on whether they'll have someone who can speak six languages. You know, maybe today I want this woman who's from the Midwest and, you know, maybe I'll go with the vice president. And even African-American older voters, they are like, we're going to go with who we know. No one else is as hungry, angry, enraged and determined as Sanders voters. Democrats need to sober up and figure out what the hell they're going to do about that. Because if he's the nominee, that's the top of your ticket. That's the top of your ticket for Senate races, House races, gubernate, everything. Figure out what you're going to do, because that's looking likely. Yeah, well, figure out what you're going to do, because that's looking lightly indeed. Likely indeed. And then Joy Reid breaking bad on uh, the suburban champagne socialists, the dilettantes that have otherwise been wooed to the Democrat Party. You know, the college educated, effete leftists like, you know, those on that panel. Remarkable how self unaware they are. Forget the Trump voters, how self unaware they are within their own ranks. It's really something to behold. It's enjoyable. Another uh, bellwether on this topic is Brett Stevens, the never Trumper over at the New York Times, who, you know, used to be sort of center right at the Wall Street Journal. Then as soon as he went to the New York Times, he came out against the Second Amendment. (laughs) So it's like you really never Trump. Trump pushed you away or you were this person and you were looking for a soft landing to continue your career. But anyway, he has written some interesting pieces on the topic, including his real concern with a Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, he doesn't have to worry about the latter anymore, but a Bernie nomination. And he writes about how enthusiastic he was about Bloomberg's candidacy. But that enthusiasm was all but dissipated after his debate performance. A debacle in three parts, right, Stevens? First is performance, obviously. Second, Bloomberg effect on Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Jamie Klobuchar, his fellow quote-unquote moderates in the field. Instead of bolstering them, he's competing with them. And the third part of the debacle, right, Stevens, Sanders came out of that debate unscathed and then, of course, was carried on to a big victory where he lapped the field in Nevada. He uh, concludes that Sanders is the candidate Trump most wants to run against and he would be the president least likely to govern well. Boy, the left has got all sorts of problems, don't they? Listen, the more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Saturday marking the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. Of course, the U.S. hockey team, those kids beating the vaunted Soviet national team at the Olympics at Lake Placid going on to win the gold medal against the Finns. And uh, as uh, some commentary over the weekend reminds us, it was about so much more than a hockey game because of the the context of the time. James Freeman in the Wall Street Journal writing, it wasn't all it wasn't at all clear on February 22nd, 1980, that America would win the Cold War. One could make the case that the bad guys had 
us on the ropes. It was even harder to believe that U.S. amateurs could prevent the Soviet hockey machine from claiming its fifth straight Olympic gold medal. Uh, David Harsani writing over at the New York Post. By 1980, Americans had somehow become the underdogs, or at least they began to think of themselves as ones. It's no exaggeration to say that the 70s had been a decade of frustration, of a cultural lethargy, of rising criminality, of institutional failures, of perceived decline, and sometimes crippling self-doubt. In the midst of the Cold War, in the midst of the economic malaise, Americans hadn't had a ton to celebrate. And so that... uh, that locker room speech by Herb Brooks, as uh, very nicely portrayed by Kurt Russell in the movie Miracle. Uh, and, um, you know, that special day, February 22nd, 1980, when uh, the U.S. hockey team sort of psychically turned America's fortunes around. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. Boys. Minnesota accent. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players. Every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. Screw them. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. Yeah, Newt Rockney quality, and of course one of the great stories, uh, certainly in American sports history. Uh, the, what the movie didn't capture, though, another moment, another Herb Brooks moment, who passed away too soon in a car accident the early part of this century. Uh, Herb Brooks, after the second period in the gold medal game against Finland, USA is down 2-1, to one, and according to... Uh, legend he went into the locker room and just said if you lose this game you'll take it to your effing graves then paused and repeated your effing graves and of course they came back to beat the Finns 4-2 for the gold medal this is Dan Prof. far from the fake news he's always got the real story this is the Dan Prof show you are fake news the world is a complicated place you need someone to expose the political fakers fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is dan proft and this is the dan proft show because they got the beat the campus beat the campus beat yeah the campus beat campus beat takes us to a shawnee state university where uh, Professor Nicholas Merriweather found out where his free speech rights begin and end in a uh, suit against Merriweather. U.S. District Court Judge Susan DeLott said that Professor Merriweather's practice of referring to students as Miss or Mr. is not constitutionally protected. 
the manner in which he addressed a transgender student by that student's biological sex was not protected speech, and so it, it was okay for him to be subject to sanction. Mm-hmm. You will be made to comply. Resistance against the Borg is futile. Now, I'm trying to find uh, words from this new glossary of terms that was authored by Lee Jessam from Rutgers University to uh, properly describe this case. It's uh, somewhere in the uh, in between athletic gynocide, which is the elimination from sports competitions of people identified as birth by doctors or other adults as female because they cannot successfully compete with people identified as birth by doctors or other adults as male but who identify as females. Follow that. This is, by the way, the best glossary of terms since Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary. It's very, very good. So somewhere between athletic gynocide and emotional imperialism, which uh, is uh, defined as the strange belief that your feelings should dictate someone else's behavior. Yeah. Maybe also included include a little bit of istophobia, fear of being called an ist, racist, sexist, fascist, etc., usually followed by self-censorship. That's probably where it's going for Professor Merriweather. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Lee Jessam, who is a professor of social psychology at Rutgers University. Professor Jessam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. This seems to be uh, the area that is really spiking in terms of litigation and confrontation on college campuses, everything under the rubric of trans. Well, I mean, there are a number of things that are flashpoints for threats to both speech, academic freedom, and free inquiry. I actually have a more serious essay simply titled The Threat to Academic Freedom from Academics. But yes, you're right. It's probably worst, you know, most severe for trans-related issues. Your piece about the threat to academic freedom, you uh, sort of echo a sentiment that's found in Douglas Murray's book on the madness of crowds, and you talk about the mob psychology of academics. I don't know whether I'm just noticing it more the last few years or it seems to have increased and gotten worse. I think it's gotten worse. I don't remember it ever being the way it is. I mean, the go-to move when people are offended by an idea now is to denounce and attempt to punish. I've been a professor since 1987. I just don't remember a cultural intellectual atmosphere like this in any prior version of my academic life. To your point, I mean, I, I, and just to stick on trans as an example, um, this at uh, University of Notre Dame, which at one point apparently was a Catholic university. This Affirming Care for Gender Diverse Youth, a panel discussion hosted at University of Notre Dame in violation of Notre Dame's own sort of academic protocols to have panels with people who have differences of opinion on a particular topic. Not here. All four of the speakers on this panel were uh, affiliated in some way with Indiana University. All were entirely in agreement that boys and girls can choose their gender, that gender is a social construct, and all were in agreement that it is okay, if not absolutely a moral imperative, to intervene medically, surgically, with respect to preteen kids so that they are allowed to pursue the gender that they say they identify as. At least as of a few years ago, most social scientists would distinguish between biological sex and gender, which was psychological. And as a psychological construct, you can imagine that, you know, whether you're male or female or identify as anything else, there's degrees, right? You can be more macho, more feminine, less macho, less feminine, whatever it might be. So as a 
psychological construct, the, you know, the non-binary thing holds, it completely holds, I think. Uh, but, but then there's the, you know, <laughs> biological sex. You know, it's one thing to make an argument that even biological sex is not binary. And there are rare biological exceptions. And, you know, you could make that case. And that would be normal academic practice. They might be right. They might be wrong. It might be kind of a little bit right, but wildly overstated. And academia, if it was functioning well, would then navigate that and negotiate that and attempt to reach some, you know, some resolution as to what, you know, what's really going on. And maybe there'd never be a resolution and it would be controversial. But the, but the way it's unfolded is in this shutdown, censorious, outrage mob uh, sort of mode where only one set of views are safe to present. And that is very scary. So uh, I talked to Spencer Clavin, who is assistant editor for Claremont Review of Books last week. We were talking about uh, Douglas Murray's book and his review of it, but also this larger dynamic that you're speaking of happening on college campuses, but certainly not limited to college campuses. And listen to what he uh, had to say about why trans has moved so quickly throughout cult- through, through the culture. Uh, he argues that it's the reason it's moving so quickly is precisely because it's not seriously defended. Two competing ideas. One, that gender is a social construct. It's a figment of our imagination. There's no such thing as male and female. But two, a person born biologically male can have some spiritual essential conviction that he's actually something called a woman and that's a real thing and and that's that's what he is so those are two ideas you actually can't hold in your mind at the same time they they contradict one another so what about that the fact that they're they're contradictory if you were forced to defend them uh intellectually and so the way that you get around that when you're largely a political activist masquerading as an academic or masquerading (laughs) in in so many other ways in our culture uh, the way you get around them is to not ta- tackle them seriously, is to shut people up who would offer scholarship or who would offer a dissenting view. That helps explain why you said this dynamic has changed between people who used to at least concede there's such a thing as biological sex and then there's gender identity and those lines have been erased. Yeah, I, I mean, <clears throat> to me, so my scientific expertise is not on the you know transgender issues or hormone therapy or any of that. So I'm a little bit reluctant to speak to the merits of the issue. What, what really kind of is central to my expertise at this point is this sort of ongoing culture, this rising culture of, of blacklisting and denunciation. And, I, you know, I, and, I, and it, this goes way beyond trans stuff. I, so a couple of weeks ago, I attended a conference at the, uh, uh, sponsored by the National Association of Scholars. They are correctly, I think, described by Wikipedia as formally nonpartisan, but de facto conservative. So they've become this sort of haven for the few conservatives remaining in academia. And several of these, this was a conference on fixing science. So science has all sorts of issues. I mean, yet, you know, we've gotten to the moon, the cell phones are amazing, but especially academic science has major, major problems. There's a very famous uh, paper titled Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. So this conference was around addressing those issues, but because several presenters were challenging some of the conventional wisdom or the consensus about uh, uh, climate science, 
the conference was denounced by a slew of academics who put pressure on people not to attend. And in fact, two younger scholars who were trying to get career liftoff were, didn't want to be stigmatized and dropped out. And this was because of denunciations about climate science. Well, right. So that so, so I mean, the dynamic that we were talking about in the, in the area of trans, oh, it, it extends to every other sector. I mean, it's just that that is an example. The cli- climate science is another example too, where um, I'm not interested in, in in a discussion about why the models were wrong. I'm not interested in what Patrick Moore has to say or. Uh, or, or Byron Lumberg or anybody who has any data driven argument that provides additional context to the discussion. I'm not interested in it. You're either for this uh, one size fits all uh, policy agenda or you're you know, cast out as a uh, as a nonbeliever. That's right. My expertise is not climate science either. So I'm not making any statement about what's true or not. And in fact, widespread consensus may be that they may be completely right. But the way you negotiate that, the way you figure that out is by permitting is permitting alternative views into the sort of intellectual culture. And then you vet those views. That that is how science progresses. It doesn't progress with this sort of uh, this sort of Maoist cultural revolution yeah. style of doing things. Uh, Lee Justin, professor of social psychology at Rutgers University. And, and do check out for a little bit of comic relief on an otherwise uh, heavy topic, his Orwell lexicon, new glossary of terms, because it is quite funny. And the reason it's funny is because it's so based in truth. Uh, Lee, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So markets reacting today in response to the increased number of reported COVID-19 cases in countries outside of China. Outbreak in Italy, leaving two dead, at least 130 people ill. 11 towns in northern Italy have been quarantined. South Korea reporting a jump in new cases, most linked to a megachurch. Of course, we know what's happening in mainland China. The spread outside of China to places like Italy, where the Venice Carnival was canceled, as I said, to South Korea, has the markets jumpy and uh, people jumpy as well. On Friday, the CDC had another one of their teleconferences. Uh, you're about to hear from Nancy Messonnet, the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases. It's simply impossible. I want to be clear that we're not seeing community spread here in the United States yet, but it's very possible, even likely, that it may eventually happen. Our goal continues to be slowing the introduction of the virus into the U.S. This buys us more time to prepare our communities for more cases and possibly sustained spread. This new virus represents a tremendous public health threat. We don't yet have a vaccine for this novel virus, nor do we have a medicine to treat it specifically. We are now taking and will continue to take unprecedented aggressive action to reduce the impact of this virus that it will have on the communities in the U.S. And one of the uh, foremost experts, uh, University of Minnesota's Michael Osterholm, quoted by Bloomberg News as saying the next three weeks are going to be critical, which is what we've reported here previously. More from Messonnier in terms of what may be required in America if there is a, a, a spike in the number of uh, reported infections, 
because of the nature of how quickly this respiratory virus spreads. The day may come when we will need to implement such measures in the U.S. communities. By next week, we expect to be posting a new web page focused on what CDC is already doing to mitigate transmission in communities. We recognize the uncertainty of the current situation. As always, CDC public health experts strive to make the best recommendations based on the most up-to-date data. Our guidance will change as we learn more about this virus. When that happens, we will share it with you. And uh, data uh, to provide context is important here. Number one, thinking about uh, exactly what the effect of coronavirus is. I mean, it's a respiratory illness. It's flu-like. The CDC reporting that the death toll so far this winter from influenza stands at 105 children. Uh, The government uh, further estimates that between 16,000 and 41,000 people have died from the flu between October 1 and February 15th. Some 29 to 41 million have been sick. That's the range. Just to provide order of magnitude here for the purposes of being level-headed about this, treating it seriously, but not becoming hysterical. So far in this country, the flu is 105x more lethal among children than coronavirus and 16 to 41,000x more lethal among all Americans than coronavirus. And again, it hasn't made full landfall. And the question is, will it? it? And to the extent it does, what form it will take? Because so much of the lack of context, the, the lack of contextual, contextual conversations involve pretending that the American healthcare infrastructure and the Chinese healthcare infrastructure or America versus other developing world countries is the same. And it's just not. And that matters. So you cannot compare apple orchards to orange groves when it comes to, for example, the healthcare infrastructure in America versus China, the responsiveness of both private and public sector in America versus the response of the central planning communists in China. It's a false comparison. As Holman Jenkins writes in The Wall Street Journal uh, over the weekend, the operative strategy is called social distancing or social mitigation. Wash your hands, avoid public places, Expect in most cases the infection to be unpleasant but not debilitating. A respiratory virus that can be spread easily and spread by people who are not experiencing symptoms, if that's the case here, will likely not fail to spread globally. But trade has not stopped. Ships and planes are still manned by crews who must be in contact with people at both ends. Screening of travelers based on whether they have been in China is running out of usefulness in countries that have locally generated transmission. Happily, for the part of the world in which spring is looming, even a few weeks of delay might have considerable payoff If this virus, like other respiratory viruses, spreads less easily in warmer and more humid weather. We don't know that yet, but that is the nature of the flu and different viruses. So perhaps the same will apply to coronavirus, and hopefully it does. One other note here, too, just this story that has been bouncing around and has been refuted and in some quarters relegated to conspiracy theory where this virus came from in the first place. There was a good piece uh, by Stephen Mosher, who's the president of the Population Research Institute in the New York Post about this, going back to that bio lab, the bio research lab in Wuhan, China, where the virus started, the outbreak started at least. He noted an emergency, the the pronouncements from an emergency meeting that was held by Chinese President Xi and, uh, you know, senior level communists on Friday. He um, writes, does Mosher, she didn't actually admit the coronavirus now devastating large swaths of China had escaped from one of the country's bioresearch labs. 
But the very next day, evidence emerged suggesting that's what happened as the Chinese Ministry of Science and Technology released a new directive entitled, quote, Instructions on Strengthening Biosecurity Management in Microbiology Labs that Handle Advanced Viruses Like the Novel Coronavirus. That's interesting that you would issue a new directive about handling assets in microbiology labs that handle viruses like coronavirus in this context. It does raise suspicions. He makes the point there's only one lab in all of China that handles advanced viruses like the novel coronavirus, and that's the one in Wuhan, the epicenter of the epidemic. He also makes note that the People's Liberation Army's top expert in biological warfare, Major General Chen Wei, was dispatched to Wuhan at the end of January to help with the effort to contain the outbreak, according to uh, one of the Chinese propagandist outlets. General Chen has been researching coronaviruses since the SARS outbreak of 03, as well as Ebola and anthrax. So this would not be her first trip to the Wuhan Institute of Virology either, since it's only one of two bioweapons research labs in all of China. He asks the question, does that suggest to you that the coronavirus may have escaped from that very lab and that General Chen's job is to try to put the genie back in the bottle, as it were? It does to me. Then there's also this piece. Some Chinese researchers are in the habit of selling their laboratory animals to street vendors after they finish experiment, experimenting with them. And remember, one of the arguments is that or suppositions is that this spread through these uh, uh, open air animal markets, seafood markets uh, with you know bats or snakes or whatever that were that were sold. The uh, uh, Mosher goes on to uh, explain they first blamed a seafood market not far from the institute in Wuhan even though the first documented cases of COVID-19 involved people who had never set foot there. They pointed to snakes, bats, and even a cute little scaly anteater called a pangolin as the source of the virus. He said, I don't buy any of this. It turns out that snakes don't carry coronaviruses and that bats aren't sold at a seafood market. Neither are pangolins, for that matter, an endangered species valued for their scales as much as for their meat. He goes on to say, so that the whole uh, seafood market uh, as the... Uh, the place where this started, transmitted, and and started to multiply, uh, he suggested no. In, in fact, he suggests explicitly China has unleashed a plague on its own people. It's too early to say how many in China and other countries will ultimately die for the failures of their country's state-run micro, microbiology labs, but the human costs will be high. So we might be getting closer to an answer of where this started and thus an answer of how it spread, and that's an important aspect of the story, too. This is Dan Show. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, Bolshevik Bernie on with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes last evening. And uh, boy, it's such a, a classic, classic example of, uh, I don't know. Uh, something that's supposed to be a punchline actually being treated seriously. You know, forget uh, Bernie Sanders on Fidel Castro. You know, why does everybody focus on the bad things that communist dictators do? What about all the good things? 
Soviet Union and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And everybody was totally convinced. Here he is explaining why the Cuban people didn't rise up and help the U.S. overthrow Cuban leader Fidel Castro. And he educated the kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did it? There's a lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right, and we condemn that. Unlike Donald Trump, let's be clear, you wanna, I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend. I don't trade love letters with a murdering dictator. Vladimir Putin, not a great friend of mine. Uh-huh. But uh, Daniel Ortega, Fidel Castro, and the Soviet communists were. And the difference, uh, Senator, with all due respect, of course, is that uh, Trump's bloviations in the direction of dictators is not the means by which he is suggesting, hey, I like what North Korea is doing. We should adopt that model here. I like what Putin's doing in Russia. We should adopt that model here. By contrast, that's precisely what you're saying in so many respects about those autocratic regimes like you did in 1985. Good piece by Jim Garrity, National Review, recounting Bernie Sanders in 1985, talking about the Soviets, telling the L.A. Times, a handful of people in this country are making decisions, whipping up Cold War hysteria, making us hate the Russians. We're spending billions on military. Why can't we take some of the money to pay for thousands of U.S. children to go to the Soviet Union? Yeah, we should be financing field trips to the Soviet Union back in the mid-80s, the height of the Cold War. He argued uh, that breadlines, breadlines were a sign of a effective regime. Seriously. 1985 interview. It's funny. Sometimes American journalists talk about how bad a country is, that people are lining up for food. That's a good thing. In other countries, people don't line up for food. The rich get the food and the poor starve to death. The breadlines in places like uh, Cuba or Nicaragua are signs of uh, <laughs> of vitality. Sanders, busy in 1985, attended a rally thrown by the Sandinistan government in Nicaragua where a half million people were chanting, quote, here, there, everywhere, the Yankee will die, unquote. While per- Daniel Ortega, president then, president again now, condemns state terrorism, quote-unquote, by America. Bernie Sanders called his attendance to, at that rally a profoundly emotional experience, according to the UPI Wire Services report. We could go on and on, but you get the point. Remarkable statements for somebody poised to be the nominee of a major party in America. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by W. James Antle III, editor of the American Conservative. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Is that um, the weakest link for Bernie Sanders? I mean, his history all the way up until Sunday night, 60 Minutes interview of being very, very soft, if not outright complimentary of dictators? It certainly complicates the whole democratic narrative on Russia. You know, if we're going to be very afraid of Russia, and yet we ha- you're going to nominate somebody for president who didn't think the Soviet Union was that big of a deal and maybe was something to, to even emulate to a certain degree, uh, and obviously the Soviet threat at the height of the Cold War 
certainly dwarfs anything uh, we're seeing from Russia today. So that, that becomes very complicated. I think the whole idea that President Trump cozies up to dictators becomes a much harder argument to make if your nominee uh, has spoken in, in admiring tones about uh, Fidel Castro uh, and, and Daniel Ortega, various other uh, communist dictators. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think these are things that, that Bernie Sanders has more or less gotten a, a free pass on because people didn't take him seriously. Uh, but I, I think as he's probably better positioned than any other Democrat right now to win the presidential nomination, I think getting the days of him getting a pass on this has have to come to a close. I want to uh, pick up when we come back on connecting those uh, uh, rhetorical forays of Bernie Sanders about these various dictators and these various regimes to what he's actually proposing in real time today. We'll have more with uh, W. James Antle III, editor of the American Conservative, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with W. James Antle III. He's the editor of the American Conservative. And, Jim, we were talking about uh, Bernie being poised to be the nominee, and that's where the fun begins. I, you know, People are already having visions of Trump and Bernie Sanders on the same stage and at what decibel level that debate will occur. Uh, but, but before we get there, it's not just statements he's made past and present about uh, the Castros and the Ortegas and the Soviets. It's also what he's proposing And uh, I mean, every day there is a new uh, unfunded mandate uh, from now. He mentioned on Saturday night, teachers making sixty thousand dollars a year, guaranteed minimum salary. Forget the fifteen dollar minimum wage, sixty thousand dollar a year, guaranteed minimum salary for teachers in America. In addition to child care, free child care, zero to four, in addition to free college, in addition to debt forgiveness, in addition to Medicare for all, in addition to the Green New Deal. It just seems to me that. uh, you know, the, the sort of ultimately that all goes to the economic, the, uh, the, 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 the idea of capitalism versus socialism as the binary choice that Trump presents to the American people come November. I definitely think that Bernie Sanders' current economic proposals are what's going to be the biggest issue, not necessarily his rhetoric about the, the Cold War, although I do think it's going to be pretty tough to carry Florida if you're saying nice things about Fidel Castro. <laughs> uh, Trump already uh, won a pretty solid majority with Cuban-American voters in Florida in 2016. I have to think that those numbers are only going to go up. But yes, the whole campaign, if Bernie Sanders is actually the nominee, is going to hinge on whether he can convince people that you can do all of these things for free and that no ordinary middle-class taxpayers are ever going to have to pay for it. And that's going to be the sale that he's going to have to try to make. And uh, Bernie was asked in that interview with Anderson Cooper, you know, how the the party has moved to you. You've been saying the same thing for four decades, and now the party has moved to you. And wasn't that perhaps the fatal mistake that so many of the candidates running for president have made? I mean, Joe Biden is talking about being open-minded, 
uh, about imprisoning fossil fuel company executives just for being fossil fuel company executives. So the sort of outlandish statements that Bernie Sanders used to make and would be marginalized were adopted by the establishment. And now the establishment wonders why Bernie is ascendant at their expense. No, that's definitely true. Now, clearly, Michael Bloomberg got into the race because he believed that uh, somebody needed to derail Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden wasn't up to the task. Uh, however, we'll have to see if his campaign strategy pans out. And he clearly didn't have a very good uh, debate the other night. But but the, the Democratic establishment has woken up very slowly to the reality that Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, is is a lot closer to winning the nomination uh, than they might like. Yes, at the moment, not very many delegates have been handed out. You know, so clearly, mathematically, there's there's a path for a lot of people to still potentially win the nomination. But if you look at Bernie Sanders' polling positions and assume that he does about as well on Super Tuesday as he does in the in the current polling in those states, and if you look at how he's performed so far in the early states, this thing has the potential to really get out of hand very quickly. And they thought they'd be able to appease Bernie by taking and his voters by taking some of his positions. But clearly, a lot of Democrats uh, are just looking for the real thing, and that's Bernie Sanders. Yeah, and the problem uh, that they have is uh, uh, Bloomberg is really sort of crowding out any other voices because of the half a billion dollars he spent. So it, the last right. the last week, 10 days, it's all been Bloomberg, Bernie, Bloomberg, Bernie. And so right. the others are not in the conversation. And frankly, maybe with the exception of Mayor Pete, they don't have the wherewithal to get in the conversation. It's a real problem. And then the other problem that they're all going to have, and Elizabeth Warren you know, has been able to raise some money since her debate performance, but the, all the other candidates besides Bernie and Bloomberg are starting to run out of money and that they need something to show donors that there's a reason to continue to fund them, to keep them in the race. And that's a problem. Uh, for Warren, that's a problem for Pete Buttigieg. It's a problem for Amy Klobuchar. It's even a problem for Joe Biden, who traditionally, as the establishment candidate, should be the person raising all of the money. But that hasn't been the case. So a lot is really riding uh, on South Carolina for Biden. Uh, he is still leading there. It's a chance for him to notch a win and maybe re- reassure some people that he, rather than Bloomberg, uh, is the candidate to ward off Bernie Sanders. But Sanders is, is, is starting to catch up to him in, in the polls, even in South Carolina, as he's starting to peel off some of the black voters uh, and, and diversify his coalition. So, you know, Biden really needs to do well in South Carolina. Otherwise, his campaign could go broke. Uh, yeah, it would be a fitting end for Joe Biden to never have won a presidential primary caucus after three tries in three decades. Right. A message about how oafish and unworthy Democrats for three decades have found Joe Biden. It's sort of, it's sort of remarkable, really. Right. Uh, but I, I, before we uh, uh, anoint Bernie the nominee uh, and then spike the football, you know, Trump can start measuring the drapes for the second term. Uh, what should Trump be worried about? I mean, one of the things that Bernie clearly has is a committed following and a lot of energy and he is uh, generating enthusiasm and big crowds, which could have a multiplier effect. So if you're pre- in President Trump's right. camp, what do you say? You know, bef- let's let's be very careful here and be very thoughtful and measured here. And this is the way we go at, at Bernie Sanders. And this is what we have to guard against. Well, number one, as you say, he does have real grassroots supporters. He's not going to have to buy them the way Bloomberg will. 
So that in and of itself means you have to take him seriously, uh, no matter how outlandish you might find some of his views. Uh, this is a serious campaign. Uh, secondly, we've learned that once you win a major party nomination, upwards of 40 percent of, of the voters are guaranteed to vote for you. So that gets you in, into a pretty uh, a good position just by virtue of getting the nomination. You've got a shot at winning the general election. The other big problem, I think, if, if I'm Trump, that I'm really focused on is that Bernie actually is probably better positioned in the upper Midwestern Rust Belt states that are really going to decide this election than Joe Biden or, or Michael Bloomberg. Certainly Elizabeth Warren was going to be. Uh, he, he does have some union support. He does have some blue collar support. Uh, he could potentially run on some of Trump's campaign promises on trade, on ending the wars, on some of the populist issues. He could sort of co-opt some of those things. Uh, argue that Trump hasn't fulfilled his campaign promises on those issues and really run on economics in these Rust Belt states and potentially turn some of them blue again. That's really, I think, the main thing that Trump has to worry about if Bernie Sanders is the nominee. He is W. James Antle III, editor of the American Conservative. Thanks so much for joining us, Jim. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, uh, today the human stain, Harvey Weinstein, was convicted on two of the five criminal charges he was facing in New York. Convicted of criminal sexual assault in the first degree, rape in the third degree, the criminal sexual assault based on the testimony of former Project Runway production assistant, and rape in the third degree based on the testimony of one-time aspiring actress named Jessica Mann. He was acquitted on the charge of predatory sexual assault and the jury apparently was deadlocked on two of the other charges that could have put him behind bars for life. But the bottom line is he's convicted on charges that could and likely will send him to jail. And this is all pending a L.A. trial that he faces where an arraignment date was just in L.A. County, was just waiting for the completion of this trial. So the human stain has a long way to go. Certainly a victory for the so-called Me Too movement in part. And you know, taking this guy out, I'm glad the jury didn't believe this sort of like, you know, mob boss routine he was doing with the walker into court and this and that. And it's interesting because of the weekend interview in The Wall Street Journal was with Clint Eastwood. And he talked a little bit about the Me Too movement. He uh, said to Clint Eastwood in this interview, the Me Too generation has its points. He appreciates women are standing up against people who are trying to shake you down for sexual favors. And he notes sexual predation has been in the movie business since the days he started as a bit part actor. Quoting Eastwood, it was very prolific back in the 40s and 50s. He pauses and adds, and the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. So it's a real thing. Now, it's a bit more complicated than I think the Me Too movement sometimes would like to acknowledge, distinguishing between those aspiring actresses who assented to Weinstein's sexual extortion and those who did not, for example. It's one thing to have a choice. It's another thing if he attacked, forced himself on a woman. And that's the case here in New York, at least with those two charges for which he was convicted. Going back to Eastwood's reviews, the policing of sexual relations is getting out of hand. He believes people are on the defense and because of Weinstein and all these other guys that have been accused and in some cases rightly accused. 
He doesn't have any sympathy for Weinstein, but he worries the presumption of innocence, not only in law, but just in general philosophy, has been lost in the accusations of sexual behavior. And, of course, Eastwood is talking about this as well, in part in the context of his recent movie, uh, Richard Jewell, and the controversy over the portrayal of that Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Kathy Scruggs, whether or not she essentially used sex for a scoop. I talked about that film, which was very good, and I also thought the Scruggs thing was unnecessary. He says, does Eastwood, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is trying to obscure its guilt for a reckless story that led to the prosecution of an innocent man and their threats of litigation for defamation. He basically says, bring it on. So the overriding point was how Richard Jewell was railroaded by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and other media outlets at the time. Not so much the uh, literary license he may have taken with Kathy Scruggs, who otherwise was known to frequent a bar where police frequented. And that's how Clint Eastwood describes it. This uh, Weinstein conviction will, of course, foment more discussion about the Me Too movement and about the culture in Hollywood and corporate America and elsewhere. And I hope it does, but I hope it does in a way that's textured. So we are very fact-specific, case-specific when we talk about accusations as serious as those leveled against Harvey Weinstein. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on Twitter, at danproftshow, and at danproft. And uh, this is really good. I just I read it over the weekend, and I'm still laughing. I'm going to laugh when I read it again. It's so good. Nicole Najafi is just some writer. She posted on Twitter one-paragraph summaries of a uh, hypothetical date with each of the Democrat presidential candidates. Okay. We'll start with the frontrunner, the Bolshevik. He picks you up at your apartment and takes you on the subway to Gray's Papaya. That's a hot dog chain in New York. Yeah. He orders two recession specials for a total of $10.86, and you split the bill down the middle even though he got a large soda. He yells in your face for three hours. You go home and cry into your pillow for six. Date with Elizabeth Warren. You meet at 6 a.m. on a Sunday for a hike. She packed a first aid kit, sugar-free snacks, and brought you an extra visor. After mile five, you get tired and ask to rest. She keeps going without you. <laughs> uh, this is a good one. Joe Biden. He takes you to dinner in the meatpacking district. He orders you a Cosmo before you arrive, like on that new show, Sex in the City. <laughs> he talks all night about a hot nightclub where his friend Barack has a table and can get us in. Barack never shows up. Date with Michael Bloomberg. He doesn't show up, but pays for the entire restaurant's meal. He texts you an apology in Spanish. I don't know. This may be even better than the uh, Biden date with Tom Steyer. You share vegan samosas at a zero waste restaurant. (laughs) Another guy hits on you while he's in the bathroom. Tom comes back out and says he doesn't want to get in the middle. He rides a city bike home. (laughs) That's awesome. A date with Amy Klobuchar. She shows up on time, laughs at your joke and asks you insightful questions about yourself. Yet you can't help but text your side piece under the table. <laughs> you skip dessert to go to his place. 
Tulsi Gabbard. She texts you at 11 p.m. and says to meet her at Scores. She gets a private room and orders bottles of champagne. <laughs> you, you wake up three days later penniless. You realize you're in the movie Hustlers. Andrew Yang, he takes you to restaurant opening and pays for dinner in Bitcoin. <laughs> you bring him to a party where he knows no one. By the end, the room chants his name while he does keg stands. And uh, to close it out, Mannequin Pete. He takes you to an Afghan restaurant and orders the entire meal in Dari. A man of color walks by and he says, what's up, my brother? <laughs> you leave the emergency room at 5 a.m. <laughs> oh, congratulations to Nicole Najafi. Very, very well done. All right. We need some levity when discussing these uh, dismal candidates, starting with the Bolshevik. And to help us do that, we're going to speak with our friend Freddie Gray, deputy editor of The Spectator, editor for Spectator USA, and host of the Americano podcast. Freddie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I can't top your dating thing. That nobody nobody can. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with uh, Bernie's big victory in Nevada, and, uh, and he looks to have all the momentum behind him, and he looks to be scaring the hell out of uh, the pundits on uh, the cable news talkies, and uh, it doesn't seem like anybody other than Bernie can stop Bernie from being the nominee at this point. Well, that's right. Uh, I mean, I wrote a piece uh, just over a year ago called Bernie's Got This. Uh, and at the time, uh, my American friends tried to explain to me that I didn't understand American politics and so on. And I'm feeling a little bit smug about it at the moment. There you go. Uh, but someone at the time um, said to me I was just suffering from Corbyn derangement syndrome, which is a reference to Jeremy Corbyn, the radical socialist British Labour Party leader who's just uh, being defeated in a general election. Uh, and I think uh, possibly I was, but also that it's very real, that, that the radical left is very, very real and it's very, very powerful. And um, you underrate it at your peril. Well, they're also uh, super energized, too, because uh, this is a little bit of the, uh, not to borrow Reverend Wrightism, chickens coming home to roost after what happened in 2016. So extra motivated. Extra motivated and and different. Um, and, you know, Bernie keeps emphasizing this multiracial element of his coalition. And it's true, he seems to be mobilizing Hispanic voters and improving among African-American voters. So I think it's a more sophisticated campaign than it was in 2016. Perhaps not quite as energized among the actual grassroots, but more professional and and broader. Well, that's the other piece of it, too, that people underestimated going in is that you know, you run as competitive a campaign as he did in 2016. You build a lot of infrastructure. You have a lot of names. You have a donor base that you can leverage and stay engaged with over the intervening three years until you crank it up again for 2020. And no other candidate, not even Biden, had that going in. That's a real advantage. Yes. I mean, he's, he's exposed again that the Democratic Party in 2020, like the Republican Party in 2016, is, is a sort of husk, really. Uh, and somebody just needs to kick it over. And it looks at the moment like it might be Bernie by revolution rather than Bloomberg by corporate buyout. But, but here, here's the thing um, with uh, Bernie that it continues to be underappreciated. And you start to dig into the numbers and you see it. Um, he is the second choice of a lot of people who aren't voting for him right now. This idea that he just has what the, the vote he's getting and his ceiling is 25. Well, now in, in, in Nevada, it moved up to 35. Um, and, but that's as far as he can go. So if it consolidates into, you know, Bernie versus, uh, say, Bloomberg or Bernie versus Mayor Pete, or it's a one-on-one matchup, then it's a whole different race. 
We saw that in 2016 with Trump. If we could just get all the conservatives to consolidate behind one guy, when it comes down to Trump and Cruz, it's a different race. It turned out not to really be a different race. Well, I think the personality thing part of that is quite interesting in that uh, a lot of Biden's uh, second choice, Biden voters' second choice is Bernie. And the obvious reason for that would be that Bernie is perceived as being likable. Um, I think this is something that might change as the election goes on. Uh, I mean, we know from a lot of sort of stories and reports about him, he's, he's quite curmudgeonly. He's a bit of a grump. Not everybody that's worked with him ends up being very happy. Um, but he does have this, what we, with Corbyn, we called it the magic grandpa power. Yeah. And uh, people perceive him as being a sort of benevolent figure, even when he's not. Uh, whether he can sustain that, I don't know. Uh, with respect to um, uh, the uh, the Democrat uh, establishment that is, uh, you know, in uh, in full panic right now, uh, it, it was interesting to watch over the weekend. I mean, even even like the Joy Reads of the world and MSNBC, how slow they were to recognize that there's sort of this anger and discontent at, at the uh, base of the party. I mean, have they not been watching the ascent of the? The socialist Spice Girls, have they not been listening to AOC? Have they not understood why she has such a following despite knowing virtually nothing about anything? It's surprising to yes. me how flat-footed that uh, the Democrat uh, uh, you know, deep thinkers on the politics side have been. Well, I find that extraordinary element of the pundit class is they all want to be the first to sort of declare this moment that anybody who's been watching who has half a brain has been able to see happening for the last four to six years. Um, so they, they're kind of, I think they're, they're finally acknowledging uh, that their party is not the party that they thought it was. But why has it taken them so long? And uh, and the uh, the last uh, Elizabeth Warren, who may be the next one to go, just because she's spent through all the money she has, which is why she's now reversed her position on be, being willing to take uh, help from super PACs. But it isn't that exactly why Elizabeth Warren is flailing and Bernie Sanders has continued to sort of be slow and steady up the hill uh, is that Elizabeth Warren is very passionate about a position she's taken. And she is uh, speaking with moral clarity where all these men on stage, you know, are permi- are politically promiscuous and they're not principled like her. And then she does a, a complete 180 and tries to paper it over with, you know, the everybody's doing it argument, which is not particularly compelling. Well, the, the, the kind of CNNs and MSNBCs of this world were trying to push this idea for a long time that the battle on the left is between Bernie and Warren. Uh, I don't think that's ever been true. I mean, if you look at second preferences of Warren voters, it's not Bernie. I mean, Warren was clearly an establishment candidate dressed up as a radical. She was a populist for rich people in New York. Um, and you know, as a result, her inauthenticity has been exposed. Well, um, yeah, and Bernie has it. And the, 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 I think Megan McArdle over at uh, where is she at Bloomberg now um, had, had a great riff on, on Elizabeth Warren. You know, she ta- her she talks about uh, the middle class all the time, but it turns out, and the way she addresses some issues like childcare are sort of the uh, reveals. It turns out basically her campaign is for uh, upper uh, income suburban women in active wear and, you know, their sort of pedestrian problems. Uh, that's who we're can- – so, so it, it, it wasn't just – it's just not Elizabeth Warren's, like, tone and reversals. She doesn't really have a constituency, not a big enough one. Well, exactly. And as a line, I don't really understand this, and I know that British people are supposed to have very obnoxious voices to a lot of Americans, but I understand <laughs> that Warren's voice is particularly grating uh, to a large section of America. 
There's no question about that. There's no question. Freddie Gray, deputy editor of The Spectator, editor of Spectator USA and host of the American Americano podcast. And check out his piece on Bloomberg at uh, Spectator USA. Freddie, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Bolshevik Bernie had a sit down with Anderson Cooper for 60 minutes on Sunday evening, fresh off of his victory in the Nevada caucus. And it seems to me one of the difficult sales jobs any Democrat socialist has to do, and particularly Bernie, although he does it with the most verve, is to convince people that things are so terrible in America for the middle income worker that they're being disenfranchised at the hands of billionaires, that economics is a zero-sum game. And so far, they haven't been particularly convincing, as evidenced by the fact that uh, recent polling has 70% of Americans saying they're optimistic about their economic future. They're optimistic that things will improve for them economically over the next year. And they say prospectively things that have improved for them, a majority of Americans say things have improved for them over the previous three years during President Trump's tenure. So that's a big sales problem for Sanders. And it's difficult, rather than uh, trying to do things incremental, yeah, things are okay, but they could be better. Uh, Bernie Sanders is reiterating his call for revolution. It's not good enough to complain, oh, I cannot afford my health care. I can't afford child care. I can't afford to send my kid to college. I'm paying half of my income in rent. You know, if you're not happy about that, you've got to be involved in the political process. Only millions of people standing up for justice can bring about the kind of change that this country requires. And I believe that has got to happen. That's his description of the socialist revolution he wants to engender. And he uh, went into some specifics with Anderson Cooper, less so on dollar amounts than on entitlements. Bernie Sanders on uh, uh, his new proposal, universal child care from zero to four. So what we are calling for is universal child care. How are you going to pay for this? We have a tax on wealth to pay for that. For all the people who like the idea of it, there are going to be a lot of Democrats again who are saying, well, wait a minute, yet again, this is another program that it's not clear how it's going to get paid for. No, it it's just going to, to add It to, is clear how it's going to be paid for. Look, Anderson, but it's more taxes. It's taxes on billionaires, you know? You know, I get a little bit tired of hearing my opponents saying, um, Gee, how are you going to pay for a program that impacts and helps children or working class families or middle class families? How are you going to pay for that? And yet, where are people saying, how are you going to pay for over $750 billion on military spending? How are you going to pay for a trillion dollars in tax breaks to the 1% in large corporations, which was what Trump did? When you help the billionaires and you help Wall Street, hey, of course we can pay for it. That's what America's supposed to be about. Well, I disagree. Yeah, one of the things uh, I get a little frustrated with there, comrade, is people who think that you could just go to the well over and over again with increasing taxes on the billionaires and not have it also ultimately be leveled against non-billionaires and non-millionaires and non-hundred-thousandaires and middle-income families. 
And, of course, at least Bernie is more honest than his brethren in proposing a 4% increase, 4 percentage point increase in income taxes on household income starting at $29,000 to support his Medicare for all $30 trillion over 10-year gambit. And I would suggest that estimate is uh, on the conservative side, the only thing on the conservative side when it pertains to Bernie. But that's not all, of course. Universal child care, zero to four. Oh, my, my, my point is on billionaires. Confiscate all the wealth of the billionaires. Confiscate all of their wealth. Not 70% marginal rate. Not a wealth tax like Chief Warren. Take it all. That's about $3 trillion, according to a Forbes calculations. So that funds the government for, what, nine months? Then what do you do? Now, remember, you've confiscated all of their wealth and uh, thus their wealth-generating capacity. So then what do you do? Because if you tax it at a little bit less in perpetuity, then again, you, they find shelters for it and so on and so forth, as Warren Buffett and so many others have done. Eliminate those shelters. Tax it at that rate. You're still not generating enough revenue on an annualized basis to fund all of the things that we currently try to fund and do not, like Medicare, much less all of the things that Bernie Sanders is proposing that we fund. Obviously, universal child care, zero to four, is hardly the end of it. And uh, in case you've forgotten, here's some more. Because we believe in education. We are going to have high quality, affordable, universal child care. This is Bernie at San Antonio on Victory Night. We are going Saturday. to triple funding for low-income Title I schools. And we need great teachers in this country. We need more Latino teachers. We need more African-American teachers. And because we know the vitally important work that teachers do, we're going to fight to make sure that no teacher in America earns less than $60,000 a year. So there's another one. No teacher earns less than $60,000 a year. It turns out uh, right now in the United States, the average teacher's salary is just over $60,000 a year. But the average teacher's starting salary in a public school uh, was uh, about forty grand. So you're going to give every starting teacher in America or teacher making the, the average starting salary of just under forty grand, you are going to give them a 50% raise right off the gate? Are oh, you going to pay for that? Wait, wait, let me guess. Tax on billionaires. Small surcharge on billionaires, right? I mean, it just never ends with this guy. And, of course, uh, you have heard these classics. And because we believe in education, we believe that all of our people, regardless of their income, are entitled to a higher education. And that is why we're going to make public colleges and universities tuition free. And we're going to cancel all student debt in this country. There's another trillion and a half dollars to go to the order. By imposing a modest tax on Wall Street speculation. There you go. Twelve years ago, we bailed out the crooks on Wall Street. Now it is their turn to help the working families in this country. Right. Uh, bailing out Wall Street, which I opposed and oppose as a matter of principle, is justification for all sorts of new entitlements that we can't finance. The logic evades me, but OK, it's magical thinking. The logic is supposed to evade me. 
Uh, by the way, just on the order of why people are optimistic, maybe more optimistic than uh, politicians, uh, certainly on the left, want them to be, is because those not susceptible to uh, the billionaire, millionaire, class envy rhetoric of the socialists like Bernie actually have a different experience than the politicians describe. In point of fact, household incomes have increased nearly 20 percent in the last 40 years in real dollars, so adjusted for inflation. Hourly compensation has increased more than 50 percent during that same period. Workplace deaths and injuries have plummeted by 30 percent and 70 percent, respectively. Workplaces are a lot safer than they used to be. That's important for a lot of middle-income workers who work in factories, work with dangerous equipment, so on and so forth. 20 million new jobs and lucrative service sectors have been created during those 40 years, technical and finance, construction, healthcare, as well as manufacturing, a bit of a manufacturing renaissance over the last three years. And also American purchasing power, now spending less than one-third of their money on stuff because the stuff that isn't regulated by the government so much, like, say, electronics, has decreased in price as technology has innovated in those spaces over that period of time. I think, as I said at the outset, Bolshevik Bernie and his comrades have a real problem. Things in America are just not as bad as they wish they were. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We talked about uh, the forthcoming pardon that uh, deserves as much attention as the Roger Stone saga. And that was John Ponder, who is the CEO of Hope for Prisoners, founder and CEO of Hope for Prisoners out in uh, Nevada. We talked about this on Friday's show, played some clips from a recent interview I did with John Ponder. President last week, when he was in Nevada, made the time to stop by a Hope for Prisoners graduation ceremony. This is an 18-month program that ex-offenders are put through by Hope for Prisoners, and there's a graduation ceremony, and we'll talk to John Ponder about the results. But at that graduation ceremony, President Trump said this, John's been doing this for 11 years, and he's done incredible. So many people have such respect for him, and I, I, I shouldn't tell you this. Should I tell you now, or should I wait? And there's laughter, and, of course, prompts the audience, tell us, tell us. So they're all saying he's done so well, he saved so many lives, he's created happiness in so many families. Sir, would you consider John Ponder for a full pardon? And I love doing it, I love doing it, said President Trump. And we are, we're giving him absolute consideration, and I have a feeling he's going to get that full pardon. I have a feeling. I can't tell you, but I have a feeling. That's usually a good thing for uh, the subject. If uh, President Trump has a feeling something's going to get done, particularly it's when it's completely within his power to get that thing done. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Ponder, founder and CEO of Hope for Prisoners, Inc. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So um, how uh, how uh, encouraging was it uh, to hear the president, not only to have the president with you for your graduation ceremony for uh, those in your program, but also to talk uh, openly about the prospect of a pardon for, for you from uh, your past life as a criminal that you left behind? You know, it was very humbling and just very hard, and it had come at a complete surprise and completely caught me off guard, but... Uh, it was just it was amazing uh, to hear those words come out of his mouth, to have the opportunity uh, to receive a pardon and full restoration of 
all my civil rights back. It, it was just it was a dream come true for me. And uh, uh, we talked about it a little bit on, on Friday's program, but it uh, bears repeating. Give us your backstory. Uh, why does John Ponder need a pardon? Well, you know, I was a person who has been coming in and out of the system at a very early age, as you know, from 12 years old, been in and out of um, different juvenile systems and prison systems in the state and uh, federal prison. Um, and it came a time on that journey where I was in the prison cell, I had a conversation with God, asked God to transform my life, and he unmistakably did. Uh, and then my mantle in life right now is to turn right back around and help other people who are facing those same challenges I once had to face to, to help and to escort them up to the next level of life. So I've been doing that uh, for 10 years, had the opportunity to impact the lives of of thousands of men and women and their family to help them to, uh, you know, live out a redeemed life. But, John, give us an indication of just how touch-and-go it was with you, the the last go-around in prison, that where uh, if it wasn't for a judge's leniency, we may not have heard the Hope for Prisoner story. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, you know, I faced uh, the possibility of spinning uh, because of my criminal history. You know, the judge could have given me up to 23 years uh, uh, in prison. And, you know, I think that I found favor with him because I had favor with God. And then and, and tell us uh, your conversion story when you say you turned your life over to God. And um, as you've said previously, uh, used the remainder of your time in, in, uh, in prison to do Bible studies. Oh, absolutely. Um, I had, uh, you know, I had a road to Damascus experience, uh, sitting in solitary confinement, facing all that time. I was broken, had come to the end of myself, accepted Jesus uh, into my heart and and never looked back from there. And as I went off to prison, behind those 50-foot walls, uh, to me, I was not in prison. I went to Bible college, and I spent every waking moment of my time, number one, trying to understand who this God is that everyone's talking about. Hmm. And the more and more I began to understand about him, the more and more I began to understand about me and look back over the last 30-some-odd years of my life and begin to understand that I was not that name that the streets gave me. I wasn't the name that was on my pre-sentence investigation. You know, I really began to fully understand that I am who God says that I am, and I can do anything that my God says that I can do. And, and it was during that time, that last stint in prison, that you had the inspiration to start Hope for Prisoners when you got out. Absolutely, 100%. And, and again, I wanted to, uh, looking back over the past, uh, you know, 30-some-odd years of my life, I made a whole lot of mistakes trying to get life right. Uh, but I learned extremely valuable lessons from all those mistakes that I made. And the, the, those lessons that I learned, it helped me to live life on a whole nother plateau. So that is what God has called me to do, is to turn right back around and help those other men and women who want to change just like I wanted to change my entire life and did not know how to do it. When we get back, I want to talk uh, to John Ponder about the new and improved John Ponder, who's been uh, working the Hope for Prisoners model for the last 11 years and the success that that uh, program has generated for uh, so many of those who've uh, gone through it. More with John Ponder, founder and CEO of Hope for Prisoners, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with John Ponder. He is the founder and CEO of Hope for Prisoners, uh, recently uh, entertained President Trump. 
at a Hope for Prisoners graduation ceremony. That was last week. And, uh, John, we talked about your, your back story. You get out of prison. You found Hope for Prisoners. And uh, what has transpired over the last 11 years as you've refined and proved up this model of uh, turning people away from lives of crime and to lives as good citizens? You know, it's been absolutely uh, amazing, the, the success that we've had in helping men and women return home to their community and get reintegrated back into their home uh, back into the workplace and for ultimately for them to be stand-up leaders in the community. Been doing it since, uh, you know, since 2009. Had a chance to work with over 3,100 individuals, have been through our process. Uh, we have a recidivism rate that is so ridiculously low at 6% and a success rate at helping formerly incarcerated folks, regardless of their background, get connected with our second chance employers. And we, we, what we've learned was that the study shows that 74% of the folks that we have worked with were successful in gaining full-time sustainable wage jobs uh, with some of our second chance employers. So we are very, very uh, encouraged at that. You know, the model that we have includes men and women from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, and that law enforcement partnership is such a win-win on both sides of the equation, getting formerly incarcerated uh, folks being mentored and trained by men and women of the police department. I, I want to break uh, that down a little bit because there's a lot there. Uh, one is your recidivism rate of 6%, and what's the national recidivism rate? The national recidivism rate is floating somewhere up, uh, depending on how they calculate it, somewhere up around 79 percent. And that remarkable. means that 79 percent of people who return back to our communities from uh, different various arenas of our judicial system will be rearrested within three years after release. And instead, you have uh, almost that percentage that are in sustainable jobs, as you say, and they're embarking upon careers and being able to support their family, support themselves, and and again, be integrated into the community. I, I want to go back to the second chance employers. So when you were first starting the program, um, did you have some employer or employers take a chance on you and on some of these uh, ex-offenders? Or did you have to prove up the program and, and, and show that uh, these people had truly reformed themselves by this through this 18-month intensive program before you would have anybody take a chance? Sure. I think it was a, a combination of both, but we really do, did have to prove ourselves, and the men and women that we work with had to prove themselves because it's such a, a stigma about hiring formerly incarcerated people. But the thing that we've learned is that uh, employers are not, not willing to hire people who are formerly incarcerated. They're just not willing to hire a project. But so when we can take men and women coming home from the prison system and help them to be tremendous assets to those second-chance employers and not liabilities, it increases the probability of hiring them uh, tremendously. So, you know, what it was that we did was that when, we, when folks come home, we wrap services around them, every service imaginable, so that when they get inside that workplace, they are soaring like superstars and that's with that second-chance employers. And if we're effective in doing that and they get in, go above and beyond the call of duty, that's what opens up the doors for the other formerly incarcerated people to get inside and be able to support themselves. And, and how do you have ex-offenders who are released choose to enroll in this programming? 18 months is a long time. You have to have people like, oh my gosh, I got to get out, I got to get, get a job, or I got to go do something, or I'm going to return back to my old life, ra rather than l l staring at the prospect of this 18-month intensive program. So how do you get ex-offenders to choose to go through your program? 
right. So what we do is we look for, and again, we start working with folks early on in the prison system. And what we look for is we look for people who have clearly demonstrated that they want their success for themselves more than we want it for them. Mm. And once we're able to uh, identify that, start working with individuals, and when they get out in the community to become phenomenally successful, then what happens is, uh, you know, the stories, uh, their success stories go back into the prison, and uh, when the other inmates hear that this person who has been, uh, you know, inside this prison with them for 10, 15 years, and now they're out, and they're just living these incredibly phenomenal lives, then, you know, we say it's gone on inmate.com, and now everyone is wanting to be a part of it because, again, you know, the vast majority of people in our prison systems today, they really do want to change. They want to do better. They have no idea how to do it. And when they see the examples of others who have walked in their shoes, living that successful, phenomenal life, they want to follow in those footsteps. Can, can you give us sort of a top-line view of what that 18-month looks like, the modules of your training program? Absolutely. And what we do is we take them through an intensive pre-vocational leadership workshop. And that kind of lays down a foundation to not only help them to get a job and maintain that job, but that is the foundation that helps them to build up the brand new life. After they complete that process, we want to get them connected with one of our second chance employers because we need to get them jobs as quickly as you possibly can. But the beauty in that 18 months is that they graduate up into the next of our commitment to be with them over the next 18 months. And in comes additional leadership. We have a 24-week leadership academy that's taught by the men and women of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Once they find jobs and earning sustainable wages, we want to plug them into Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University Mm. to make sure that they can manage that money and they'll never find themselves in a situation where that money is managing them. For those individuals who need uh, substance abuse treatment, there's a continuing long-term support uh, for them. So anything that we possibly can to uh, help to keep them engaged and keep them moving forward so that 18 months from now, they will be living on a level of life that most people only dream of. And, and how important is that law enforcement mentorship piece, which is really something sort of unique to your program? It is imperative. And if you think about it, the mission of our organization is to help men and women who are coming home get out in the community and to live phenomenally successful lives and never go back. We have to instill in them a love and appreciation for the the rules and regulations uh, of our community. We found that that gets enhanced when they are in relationship with the men and women who are upholding the law. But if you turn the coin to the other side, Dan, um, it's working on both sides. This level of partnership is helping men and women from law enforcement view men and women who are coming home from the prison system who are truly fighting for a second chance from a whole other set of lenses. It's an, it's an incredible story and uh, incredible success you found for yourself as well as for other people. And, uh, boy, good luck with that uh, forthcoming pardon from President Trump. I'm pretty optimistic if the president's optimistic. He is John Ponder, founder and CEO of Hope for Prisoners. John, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My honor. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Getting drunk on a plane. Buying drinks for everybody but the pilots. A party got to sell. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and behold another instance of uh, leftist tolerance. 
Indiana couple has been arrested for driving two teenage boys on the bike off the road while shouting threats at them. This happened last summer. It's somewhat reminiscent of the uh, guy driving his van through a uh, voter registration booth for Trump supporters at a mall in uh, Jacksonville a couple weeks ago. Kyron Gregory Perry Jones, age 23, Kaylin Marie Smith, age 18, arrested after evidence of the attack on the boys who are twins was posted to Snapchat. You all scared just like your president? America is not great, expletive. Miss Smith, delicate young flower she is, can be heard saying on a Snapchat video obtained by police, Northwest Indiana outlet reporting that Snapchat shows the Malibu driven by Perry Jones swerved the wheel sharply as if he saw the boys and wanted to hit them with the vehicle while yelling, y'all better get home. The couple is also heard swearing at the boys, demanding that they pull that flag down. They also threatened to beat them up if they reported the incident to police. And Perry Jones, the driver, said if police questioned him, he would claim the boys called him a racial slur. Perry Jones, an African-American gentleman. One of the boys told Detective Smith the woman snatched their flag while filming the video, so they chased after the car. Only after the boys threatened to call police did the couple drop the flag, intentionally run it over at their vehicle before fleeing the area. Records state, hmm, all those uh, enlightened college-educated socialists running around, isn't it? Oh, and by the way, the admission that he was willing to fake a hate crime on the same day, uh, well, the report of this and talking about it on the same day that Jesse Smollett is back in court in Cook County, Illinois. Behold the tolerance, right? The Bernie bros of violence. Unrelated story, but since we talked so much about all-you-can-eat buffets last week, let's end the show tonight on a bit of a silly note. Meteor Buffet in Huntsville, Alabama. Chinese seafood buffet reviews on yelp uh pretty enthusiastic particularly with respect to their seafood and uh yeah it seems to be quite popular according to a huntsville alabama police officer named gerald johnson who happened to be eating at meteor buffet uh the a fight broke out between uh, two individuals one john chapman and one chiquita jenkins uh they started pushing each other out of the way to get to the crab legs And the pushing escalated to each taking metal tongs and starting to use them as fencing, (laughs) fencing swords at each other. The police officer, John, saying it's not something you typically hear if you can imagine a fencing match. No, it certainly isn't. It's all you can eat, Gerald and Chiquita. There's plenty for everybody. Johnson said everyone was saying they cut me in line. She cut me in line. He cut me in line. Uh, He said she said. And then the tongs came out. Uh, the uh, uh, outlet uh, covering this story for us notes, it isn't the first time a, a buffet brawl broke out over crab legs. In April of 2016, two people got an altercation which resulted in a cut lip and a broken front tooth. One diner e- even sprayed uh, pepper spray to break up the fight. <laughs> so Chapman and Jacobs face uh, hundreds of dollars in fines. Uh, and uh, 11 bucks for the buffet, all you can eat. And I'll tell you what, if people are willing to go to those lengths over the crab legs, next time in Huntsville, you can find me at the Meteor Buffet. Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.